And this actually is going to tie in a little bit to what we've been talking about for the last several weeks, which is evangelism and, and sharing the story of Jesus with other people. It's not just simply like living out a good life and like tipping your waitress and opening the door for the lady who's walking in behind you or smiling to your neighbor that, that really being a follower of Jesus means that we talk about who He is and how He's changed our lives. And I think this is a good way to open up that conversation. And I, I it was uh, Jeff McCool who came up to me after class. You know, last week we were talking about, you know, what I do to prepare to run and that it has to be well thought out. And then we kind of transition to that, like, how are we preparing to tell that story to other people, and I, I showed you that the the little headband that I wore, that the little gutter, this little plastic goofy thing that I wore. And he says he came up after class. Jeff did and said, "Hey, I didn't want to interrupt class, but I I just had this thought." He said, "You know what?" Um, he says, "I think the gutter is the perfect icebreaker." <laughs> he says, "You walk into a room and wear that, and everybody will stop and look at you." And then you can start talking about that gutter and then people can laugh at you and then they can transition into, but how great is our God? And I think there's a lot of different ways in which we can introduce into our conversations that we believe that there's a God and he sent his son Jesus. And I think that we need to be thinking about how do we open up those conversations? Uh, we love to talk rain around here just because it's so scarce but having a conversation about rain can lead into a conversation about isn't god amazing that he would create the world in the way that he did that he would allow this this rain to fall down and allow moisture for our lands and as a result we have plants and crops and the ability to eat that which we grow from seeds. It's just so, it, it's so perfectly harmonious the way that this world has been made. But I want to shrink it down for just a little bit. And I want to talk about this. And every time I think about this, my mind just starts racing. It races and races. In fact, last night I was staring at my clock last night. I, I go to bed early, at least for me, on Saturdays. I try to get in bed around 9 uh, o'clock because my alarm will go off at 6. For some of you, 6 o'clock is a really late day. Uh, but for me, um, I, I get out of bed at 6 on Sundays, and so I want to give myself plenty of time to sleep. At 3 in the morning, I'm still staring at my clock thinking, my alarm's going to go off in three hours. I can't fall asleep because I just get so consumed with the idea of how great is our God and how crazy is it to think that all of this could have somehow come up by an accident. And it really makes me think. But I'll, I do want to say this. <clears throat> If you choose to believe in creation because it's the more logical or rational reason, you are crazy. I do not want to suggest for a moment that it is easy or simple to believe in a God, especially in a God who would send his son to die for us. Okay, that's illogical, it's rational, it's reckless, it's crazy, and it's what we 
have to have faith in to believe. We can't sit there and prove this. And so when I talk about all these things, which by the way, disclaimer, I was teased afterwards that I was spinning the globe the wrong direction. So for those of you who caught that, I apologize. The sun rises in the east. That's not that it rises. It stays the same. But I should have been spinning it. Wait, let me think again. Now I have to think again. That's right. Yeah, that's, it should have been spinning this way. So there you have it. That that fast and we're all dizzy and squashed to the ground. But um, I, I don't want to sit here and say that I know a lot about science. I know very little about science. And there's pl plenty in the medical field. There's plenty of archaeologists and paleontologists, uh, uh, scientists who have studied. And they know way more than I do. And I don't want to suggest that that when we talk about evangelism, it should be an argument that, that we try to win. And so I want to go back for just a minute uh, and talk about this idea of evangelism. Uh, and one of the things that we did with the kids when they were, when we had them at camp and we were talking about evangelism, we, we had, they were all sitting down and we numbered them. One, two, one, two, one. And we said, one's here, two's here. And then we brought out a rope and we threw it on the ground. And what did they immediately decide that we were going to do? Tug of war. We didn't say anything. We didn't say we're gonna play tug of war. They're like, okay. So they immediately twos get over here, ones get over here, they grab the rope, they know the deal, and they start pulling, they start pulling, they start pulling, and guess what happens? Okay, somebody wins, and what does that mean? Somebody loses. Okay. And sometimes we start to think that evangelism is like this game of tug of war and that you're kind of pulling back and forth like I'm going to pull you over to this side and I've won, you've lost. But then we saw something interesting and one of the students pointed out to us, right? Okay, so there's the game of tug of war and you had the people pulling over here and the people over here don't want to go. They're getting drugged. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. But they can't win and they lose. So what happens after we say the game is over? They drop the rope and where do they go? They go right back to where they started. And I think that's important when we think about evangelism. If we're trying to drag people over and we do so against their will and we try to argue and, and beat them down and pull them over, yeah, we've won. What happens when they get done with the argument? They drop the rope and they walk back to where they were. And so when we talk about this idea of sharing the message of Jesus Christ, it can't be this idea of we've got to beat them, we've got to win out, it's us versus them. It is actually walking with people. And then we did a neat exercise that we won't, we won't show today, but we, had a, 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 we took a, a similar rope and drew it across, and we put everybody on the same side, and we said, okay, now we all want to get over to this side. And it was interesting, some of the things that we learned from that, because it, the rope was about this high, and so we had some kids, especially some of the boys were like, I'm manly, and they would run and they would hop over. Now, if you touched the rope, you, you died and you had to come back over and do it again, right? You had to get over. But when we had everybody on this side, you would see some people would immediately get over there, and it was easy for them. And, and for some of you and some of your children, you've seen them make that leap of faith, and they're like, I can do this. Other people aren't really sure. Some of them need help. And it was amazing. We watched one group. We had them split up in age groups, and we had like the 7th and 8th graders. And there was this um, one young lady 
who got up next to the rope and she got down on all fours. And the, the big dumb boys were just standing there like, what do we do? And they started stepping on her back so that they could jump over. None of them thought, well, maybe I need to do that. But she understood that in order for people to get over, that she had to, to serve, and she literally had people stepping on her. And then came the point where she realized she needed over, and she had to rely on other people to help her. And that's almost as hard as just going over yourself, is saying, okay, I can't do this. And for some people, that leap of faith requires the effort of other people around you. And so when we talk about this idea of evangelism, and we talk about creation and share it with other people, we have to remember that it's not this tug of war. It is, I want to walk with you. And you may walk with someone for just a short period of time, and you may verge off, and then somebody else is going to pick up, and they're going to walk with them. And you may never know how far they get down that road. But the important part is you're just walking with them. And one of the things that I think we need to do is we need to figure out how do we open up these conversations? How do we talk about how amazing our God is? And so before we talk too much about that, I want to go back to this idea of intelligent design. And there are a few concepts that I think that we're, we just have forgotten. Um, when we talk about the earth and the atmosphere and the air in which we breathe, this is actually really, really important. I don't know, I don't know if you think about that. Is there anybody in here takes a breath and is like, ah, oh, I just breathed in. Did anybody think about that just before they breathed in? They thought, I really could use 21% oxygen and 78% nitrogen in the air. That's, that's what I'm craving right now. Some of you are like, I, could, I would just love a nap right now. If he would, if he would stop talking, I, I would take it in. The, the air that we breathe is 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen. That leaves 1% of some random other uh, mixture of, of different types of gases. Okay, but, but I want to talk just for just, a second about this the partial pressure of and this is words I can't understand but but I think it'll ring home to you as it did to me the partial pressure of oxygen is important it should be neither too low less than 0.2 bars becomes hypoxic nor too high more than 0.4 bars oxygen toxicity what is important is that each lungful have neither too much nor too little oxygen with the other gases causing no harm. Okay, did you catch that? If you're having, if you're taking in too much oxygen, you can become, uh, you could ultimately have um, oxygen toxicity. If you have too little, you become hypoxic. And afterwards, um, talk to the person in the scrubs and she'll explain about the oxygen and what, what you need to have in you. But the important part is we don't think about this, but if it were off by just a minute percent, it would affect our ability to live. Period. It has to be just right. I mean, there are literally millions of 
and millions and millions of factors that go into the earth and the creation that if it is just a little bit off, everything falls apart. Okay, so you've decided that you're going to get a glass of ice water. Okay, you put the ice in the cup and then you take the tap water and you put it in the cup. What happens to the ice? It starts to melt. But what does it do when you fill the cup up? Where does the ice go? How many of you have thought, isn't it great that ice floats? Has any of you thought that? Have any of you thought what would happen if ice didn't float? Guess what? We can't live on the earth if ice doesn't float. Have you ever thought about that? We couldn't sustain life on this planet if ice... That is one tiny, minute detail. You get ice in the sea. If it doesn't float, if it sinks to the bottom... What happens then? It starts to kill all the living creatures because where it's warmer at the top of the water, it is much, much colder down at the bottom. And if, if the water on top freezes and then sinks to the bottom and it freezes and sinks to the bottom, before long of that 94% of the living creatures on the face of this earth, and I know it's hard to imagine, but all of that stuff has an effect on everything uh, outside of the water before long we could not live on this planet if ice didn't float one tiny detail there is not one scientist or ecologist who would tell you that if we have ice that sinks to the bottom and destroys uh, the plant life at the bottom, which would then destroy all the, the fish above that and above that and above that, and before long, we would not have a planet that could have sustain any type of life. Have you ever thought about that? And here we have people... And I'm not, I'm not trying to pretend that I know everything. But here we have people who say that 4.5 billion years ago, these two planets collided and literally there's this water-based primordial soup that everything landed and as a result of that, things started growing out of that. If one of those things was off, when it hit and somehow this came out of it, this had to be tilted at the right angle. It had to be spinning, sorry, spinning at the right amount. It had to be rotating at the right amount. It had to have a moon that was circling around us. The moon is not just for looks, people. It is, it is more than a pretty face. You get rid of the moon, and we're in big, big trouble. That big rock that's circling around has such a great importance on the earth. Without the moon, the earth could not survive. It's that important. And somehow, 
I mean, can you imagine throwing two things together and it falling in place? Someone once talked about the theory of evolution and said it would be like taking uh, five different pieces of metal held by five different people and they all throw it at the same time and they hit in such a way that they shatter and break apart and when they fall, they land and they turn into a perfect working watch on the ground with gears and levers and spring that's that's like the equivalent taking five pieces of metal throwing them so hard that when they split apart gears are formed and they all fall and land perfectly into the case with the screws that go in and everything that's like trying to talk about a world that comes together just like that. So let's bring it down just a little bit. There's one more thing I want to talk about, and it's something that you probably don't think about a whole lot. Okay? Scabs save lives. I think they're the most underrated part of our body how many of you think on a regular basis I love the scab that I have on my arm now here's something I figured out when you get older like I don't know what happens like I'm getting older and like I can brush near something and I look down and all of a sudden I'm bleeding I don't know what happened like at some point my skin starts to get thin I can look down I'm like bleeding like, I have no idea where that came from and I, I'll have this this scab scabs gross and disgusting right and it absolutely saves your life okay don't confuse blood with drying paint when i was a kid i thought a scab was like a like paint that was like left out too long and it dried that is not how blood works okay so if you think my you know you know i leave paint out too long and it'll get that thick skin well that's just like blood uh scabbing over that's not at all and and the medical term is your blood coagulates I, I love that word listen to this you're gonna love this here we go more than 30 types of cells and substances in blood affect clotting or coagulation the process is initiated by blood platelets platelets produce a substance that combines with calcium ions in the blood to form thromboplastin, which then, in turn, converts the protein prothrombin into, th um, into thrombin into a complex series of reactions. Thrombin, a protoolytic enzyme, converts fibrinogen, a protein substance, into fibrin, an insoluble protein that forms an intricate network of minute thread-like structures called fibrils and causes the blood plasma to gel. The blood cells and plasma are enmeshed in the network of fibrils to form the clot. That's what happens when you cut yourself and the blood rushes. It doesn't like, oh, oxygen, we're going to dry up. 
there's this process that includes 30 types of cells and all these things have to happen in order for that blood to clot. Okay, I just want you to think about this for a second. That is a very, in fact, someone was, once was telling me about, I, I gave you the Super Reader's Digest version. But somebody said that there's a, a book that's like 500 pages thick that describes the process of blood clotting. Like it is a deeply complex, I, I want to say procedure, miracle that has to happen. Okay, but I want you to think about this for just a moment. What happens if just one of those portions of that large process goes askew and your blood doesn't clot you, you, you die you, you die is there a bucket around here i thought there was I don't. oh you have one right there Is, is one of them dry? There we go. Thank you. It's going to make a great sound, but at least our carpet will. I don't know if that's any better now. It's going to drive me crazy. I mean, I don't know if you've thought about this, but like if, you, if your blood doesn't clot, you die. If your blood doesn't clot, you die. Think about this. I, we're, I mean, we're in an age where, you know, we have ointments and we have Band-Aids. It doesn't matter. If, if your blood doesn't clot, you're going to die. Let's go back, you know, when Lynn was a kid and we didn't have any modern medicine or anything. They, there was a time when people thought that, like, if you got sick, it was because your blood was bad and they needed to bleed the blood, bad blood out of you in order for you to live, right? They would put leeches on you. Do you remember that? That was a long time ago, but that was, okay. Can you imagine just a hundred years ago? What would happen a hundred years ago if you're running out in, in the, the field and you step on a thorn and you get, and you, you start bleeding out of your toe? One of two things happens. Either this really complex blood coagulation takes place and it stops the bleeding or you die and we're not I think we we forget when people talk about this idea of evolution and oh we just started and then we got like how could someone something without a brain think I really should come up with a way to get the blood to clot and it's not like you can have a child and that blood not clot in that child and say, oops, that was a mistake. I better birth a child that can have blood that, that clots. And yet, that's basically what evolution is relying on. It's relying on everything working in perfect harmony, not unlike the drops that are going here and there and here and there. I think we're just going to have to cut class. I don't know how I'm going to be able to finish through this. But I want to talk about this for just a little bit more. We'll, we'll, we'll leave the blood coagulation for just a minute. But fun, fun times here. 
Um, let's transition from science to medicine. Can somebody tell me how many organs we have in the body? Any, anybody want to take a wild guess? More than three. There are 78. 78. Now, not all of them are, are vital organs. Um, you have some uh, that are, aren't vital, like hair, hair follicles and teeth and gallbladder. Okay? Um, I'm minus the gallbladder. Okay? It's not a vital organ. It does some important things, but I can live without it. Um, you know, uh, Lynn doesn't have any hair follicles on top of his head, but clearly he's still breathing. He's doing well without them right you can have those there are some that are nice to have but they're not vital things like eyes and ears and tongue and nose and fingers you don't have to have those but man they are really really nice to have and as a species it would be we would not be near well as advanced if we didn't have those as a whole the ability to hear and to see, to speak and to communicate. But then there are others that are absolutely essential. Okay? Can we talk about some of the vital organs? They've lit, there's like five vital organs, but I think we could argue that there really technically are more than that. But can anybody guess what the five vital organs are? Heart, brain, lungs, kidney, and liver. Those, those are the five. Now, I think we could really argue that there are some more that you, you really need to have. I don't know if you've thought about this, but actually your skin is considered an organ. Yes, it's the largest organ. And why it's not considered a vital organ, I'm not really sure. I've never seen a person without skin. I think it would be really difficult for them to survive any amount of time without skin. Right. Okay, then you have other things like the stomach, uh, you have blood, you have muscles, you have bones, uh, you have reproductive organs. All these are organs that you really need, not only as an individual, but as a species in order not only to survive, but to be able to procreate and, and have more of your species. Those are absolutely necessary. Our bodies are a work of art and of science and of medicine. And I haven't figured this out, but I want somebody to tell me at what point in evolution did we get those five organs that are important and vital to our living? Because you can't have four out of the five. You can't. You cannot create a human with everything but a brain and it actually be able to survive. You cannot create it with everything but lungs and it survive. It cannot say, well, we're going to have a lung, we're going we're gonna to grow lungs and develop them over the course of several million years. And then once we've got that figured out, then we're going to start growing a brain because then the lungs are like, what am I going to do for the next 500 million years while I'm waiting for some way to use them? In fact, early on, as evolutionists were trying to decide about um, how we evolved, they came up 
organs that they said aren't really important. We don't need them. They're just leftovers from evolution. And at one point, they said the thyroid is like a leftover um, organ. We don't really need that to survive. <laughs> How many of you have had thyroid issues or know someone who's had thyroid issues and would say, you know what, I think I'm going to keep mine. I don't want to have it removed. Now, medicine has since said, no, 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 the thyroid is really important. Okay. At one time they said tonsils aren't important. They said your tailbone is not important. The only reason that we have a tailbone is because we used to have a tail hooked to it and it's not really that important. True story. Okay, they used to say the appendix is not important, it's useless, it's left over, we don't really need it. We understand that while appendix is not vital, it's important to have and can be useful. But at one point they said in order to explain all of this, we have to say, oh yeah, we have some leftover stuff that we don't really even use. Does that really seem to make any sense to you? Our bodies are so very important over the course of the sermon this morning your heart beat about 1500 times 50 1500 times your heart flexed and relaxed every second flex relax actually no it's uh it's relax, no, it's flex, relax, right? Flex, relax, flex, relax. Is that right? Or is it relax, flex, relax, flex? Relax. I, don't, I told you I'm not a science. I don't know anything about medicine. All I know is that without me thinking about it, without you thinking about it, since we started worship, that was, wow, uh, nearly uh, about 100 minutes ago. So that's what, 6,000 times? Between six and 7,000 times since you sat down and we started singing, your heart has been doing this. It can't quit. Well, I mean, it can quit. But if it quits, you do too. You didn't think about it. You didn't plan it. In fact, over the course of your lifetime, your heart will beat about two billion times flex relax flex relax flex relax if that doesn't happen if it decides to take a break where's sammy abney where are you if it decides it's going to get out of rhythm what happens it is not it is not good at all i mean just getting out of rhythm i'm not saying that it stops beating i'm just saying if it gets out of rhythm like it completely throws you off Two billion times, for most of us, it will remain in rhythm. Flex, relax. Flex, relax. Flex, relax. Every day 
for 60, 70, 80 years. It's going nonstop. You don't think about it. You don't tell it to do it. It does it. It pushes blood in. It sends it all throughout the veins and then the arteries. It, it, it works in a very fantastic action. It goes like this, right? Maybe it does this. Thank you. Kristen gave me the nod like he, it's driving me crazy. He's doing it wrong. So it's, it's something like this. <laughs> Like it has to do it. When you fall asleep, it does that. 30 minutes ago in the sermon, when you were nodding off, when you lost concentration, when you thought, he, where is he going with this? The heart didn't say, I'm out here. Like, I'm done. I'm not doing anything. It kept on going. When you weren't thinking, when you were off in la la land, when you were thinking about, what are we having for lunch? The heart's like, I'm going to pump. That's what I'm going to do. Okay? And if I can scream and yell, and get your senses going, guess what happens? Then it starts beating faster. When, when your body needs more oxygen, when your muscles need more oxygen, it tells your brain, your brain tells your heart, your heart stops, starts beating faster. And for those of you who have a watch on like, like I do, I'm, I'm right now doing 96 beats per, per minute. One and a half beats per second. Is what my heart is beating. I'm not thinking about it. I'm not telling you probably should speed up a little bit. Like how amazing is that? That doesn't accidentally happen. I, I don't I, I saw Bessie here earlier. I think I think she had to take Julie back home. But they have a sweet old car um, that they have, and I can't even remember the name of it now. What are they? Fords, they have two Fords, and I, I think they were 60, 70 models, 63, so they're coming, they're about 60 years old, okay, and we had the kids there, I, let me tell you, my heart was like just going at it, because we had kids around there, they're like sweeping, they're carrying boxes, and I'm like, stay away from the car, just don't go near it, I mean, because you know what happens if you drop a shovel and the, and it smacks and hits the side? You know what it does? It makes a dent or a scratch. Okay, maybe you've forgotten this, but I've had scratches. I got scratches that week. You can't see them. The body heals itself. You, you take a car and put a scratch on it, you don't come back in two days later and say, wow, look, it, it just healed itself. That's what our bodies do. Could this accidentally have happened? Or is it possible that the rain, that the rotation of the, the earth, that the sunrise that the, the animals frolicking around? Could it be that all of those are speaking of a God who has wisdom and creativity and love? And so when you think about, I don't know how to talk about God to other people. Look around you. You don't have to talk about 
the, the weather as though it's it's an end it's a means to a conversation that can get you to isn't it amazing that we have a god who works this powerfully how amazing is that i don't fully understand it i i'm just saying there are there are lots and lots of ways that we can open up a conversation about how amazing of a God that we have based on just the things that we have around us. Our hearts were created by God. Our bodies were designed and formed by God. The earth was spoken into existence by God. The Aurora Borealis, the Grand Canyon, Mount Everest, Victoria Falls, the ocean, the land, the earth, and everything in it was created by God and speaks of a creator. That's what it does. And there are, there are people, probably most of you didn't, didn't have this kind of education but especially Dimitri for sure, and, and maybe some of you a little bit uh, older than Dimitri, grew up in, in an, uh, the, a school where they taught this, where they taught that we were evolved from nothing. And that there is no God. And it is silly. It is laughable to imagine that anything else could have happened other than evolution. As I started off, I said, it is not easy or rational or logical to say, I believe in God and here's how I can prove it. We can talk about the aurora borealis. We can talk about blood clots and how intelligent our bodies and this earth and how everything has to just fit perfectly. But there's still a big, big stretch. But don't think that evolutionists have it locked down. Because Charles Darwin, 160 years ago, when he wrote Origin of the Species, he said, we have a big problem with evolution. And he said, let me, let me explain what our problem is. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to my... He says this. He says, the fossil record, okay, the, the fossils that we currently have, we touch, we know, we see has long been recognized as a problem for evolutionary theory. He says, the fossils that we have seem to contradict evolution. He says, uh, Darwin explained, uh, in The Origin of Species, Darwin explained that his theory led him to believe that the number of intermediate varieties which have formerly existed on the earth must be truly enormous so what he's saying is is that okay you know if if we went from man i'm sorry if we went from monkey to monkey to monkey to monkey to monkey to, and i don't know all the different names that they have for them but in in 1965 somebody sketched out um somebody sketched out 
Uh, what did, I want to make sure I get. Uh, I had this. I had this in here, and I can't seem to find it. Uh, the progressive. Uh, the progression of man. Okay, they somebody sketched it out. What Darwin was saying was, okay, here's the deal. We have lots of fossil records of these primates. Okay, we have lots of fossils of humans. He said the problem is right now is that we don't have a lot of fossils, really any fossils, other than they claim here's one here, or here's one there, where, where we have thousands and thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of primate fossils and hundreds of thousands of human fossils. We don't have all these intermediate ones in between. They actually call it what? The missing link. They refer to it as the missing link because they say, we have these, we have these. And so here's what Darwin says. He says, he recognized that the fossil record did not document these intermediate forms of life, asking, why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? He says, they should be filled with these, these missing links. They should be everywhere. We can't find them. Darwin's answer showed the tenuous nature of the evidence backing his ideas. Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic change. And this, perhaps, is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. Darwin says, here's the problem with evolution. I haven't, we haven't found all these missing links. They should be everywhere and we can't find them. And what he hypothesized was what? That the more we dig, the more we're going to find. 160 years later, they're still digging and they're still not finding. They found this skull and a hundred yards away, they found a femur. They brought them together. The, the skull was broken. They finished off the rest of it. They called it Lucy. And they said, this is proof. When Darwin said, they should be everywhere. All we have are these drawings of a guy in 1965 who said at one time we were monkeys hunched over and then he drew another sketch of a monkey, a primate, that's a little less hunched over and science gave them these really big fancy names but archaeologists have not found proof. Now, I'm not trying to say we go out and make arguments but when people say when we have kids in school that are getting laughed at and made fun of for believing in creation and saying evolution is the only way. If you don't believe that, you're an idiot and you believe in myths. All creation cries out that there's a God. From the drop of a blood to the northern lights, we can have faith in that type of God. And we are at 11 o'clock, and so we are going to close out in prayer. But I want you to, your homework for this week, okay? 
I want you to go out this week and I want you to look around with your eyes and see what are things that are showing me that give me faith in God and the fact that he created. So I want you, that's going to be your goal this week. We're going to close out in prayer and then we'll be dismissed. God, thank you so much for giving us these, these little hints, these little things that help us to believe. And we still know that it takes a huge leap of faith to believe uh, in, in creation, uh, to believe in you, and, and certainly to believe that you would love us enough that you would send your son. And so God, just bolster our faith. Let, it not, let us not rely on, on proofs or fossil records, but in our hearts just strengthen us and give us faith to believe in what we can't see and what we can't touch. Most importantly, help us to believe that you're such an amazing God and that you would love us so much that you would send your son to die for us. And by doing so, give us an opportunity to one day meet the Creator who has lavished us with all of your creation. May we be with you forever and ever. Amen.